You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles together. We turn for our Old Testament reading to the book of Exodus, chapter 24, the first 11 verses. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But the Lord did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. As for our Old Testament reading, let's turn now to John 6, beginning at verse 30. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I preach to you this afternoon from the word of our God as it's summarized and confessed in Lord's Day 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Beginning at question and answer 75, how does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice 
on the cross and in all his gifts. In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? First, to accept with a believing heart all the suffering and the death of Christ and so receive forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Second, to be united more and more to his sacred body through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. Therefore, although Christ is in heaven and we are on earth, yet we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and we forever live and are governed by one spirit as the members of our body are by one soul. Where is Christ promised that he will nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul where he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, have you ever given a lot of thought and attention to food and mealtimes? If you happen to be like me, you tend to take a lot of this for granted. Food is viewed as the stuff that automatically appears on your plate. It comes to you in endless variety, color, substance, and taste. It generates likes and dislikes, and at times indifference. Food is food. Yes, and meals are meals. Getting together with family and friends to have a meal together is one of those things that we just do. From a very young age already, we are exposed to eating together around a table at a certain time of the day. And that's just it. It's so ordinary, so normal. Some would even say, so boring. At least, beloved, that's the way I used to think about food and about meals. But then you visit a country like China a few times and you begin to wonder. Perhaps there is more to it than we so often assume. 
For the fact of the matter is that in China, food and eating together is a cultural event. It's the highlight of the day. It's the central activity of the home and the family. In other words, it's a major undertaking. Oh, I know for us Westerners, this is all different. We may like our our food, especially our fast food, but more and more it has to be fast, quick, and easy. You take it out of the freezer, you stick it in the microwave, you nuke it, you flop it on some plates, and presto, there it is. And the impression is thereby created that it's all a bit of a routine, all a bit of a chore. And as for meals together... As for sitting around a table together, eating slowly, conversing and sharing together, those are becoming rare moments. The whole world is on the run, and we are on the run with it. We seem to have no time to really share a meal together. Yes, and I dare say that all of that is not an improvement, As a matter of fact, I think it's a sign of decline. Our culture and our way of life is under stress. We need to learn from the Chinese. We need to learn from other people in the world as well. That food and meals and eating together still matters. And why, beloved, if we are perceptive, we will notice as well that, biblically speaking, it matters too. For what is one of the highlights of the biblical faith? It has to do with a meal. It has to do with food. It has to do with sharing and fellowship. It has to do with the Lord's Supper. And what is that supper? A very special meal for the Church of Christ. We're going to look together at the host, the menu, and the benefits. Well, beloved, if you read the Bible carefully, you cannot help but notice that actually it has quite a bit to say about food and meals. And it also relates and tells us about some rather extraordinary meals. Take the case of Abraham. It appears that one day he's sitting in front of his tent, probably in the afternoon, and he's dozing off. And suddenly he looks up and he sees three men standing there. And in haste he gets up and he bows himself to the ground and he extends greetings to them as well as hospitality. And he invites them to eat and drink with him. Little does he realize, however, that one of the men is God himself. Truly, Abraham is having a meal with God. Or to cite another surprising event, take the case of Lot a little later on, who also extends hospitality to two strangers and invites them to his home. And, of course, at first they refuse, but he persists. And so they come and they share a meal with him. And lo and behold, he's sharing a meal with angels. Or, beloved, what about Exodus 24 that we've read together? It records one of the strangest meals of all. 
It takes place on Mount Sinai. It happens in the presence of the Lord, and, and to it God invites Moses, Aaron, Abihu, Nehud, and the 70 elders of Israel. And then we read these astounding and perplexing words. They saw God, and they ate, and they drank. Can you imagine that? God and men sharing a meal together. What a mind-boggling experience that must have been. And now, beloved, in a way, all of these these meals and many more that could be mentioned from Scripture prepare us for something even more unusual, and that is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Question and answer 77 of the Heidelberg Catechism quote the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, and they tell us that the Lord Jesus instituted a very special meal on a very special night. The night was special because it was the night on which he would be betrayed and handed over to lawless men. In other words, at any moment he is going to be arrested, led away, taken captive. The end of his earthly life looms in the form of trials, accusations, scourgings, and crucifixion. Jesus is about to die. And now note this. What does he do at this critical moment? He institutes a new meal. And as he institutes this meal, you can see he presents himself as the host. He designates the elements and he says twice over, do this in remembrance of me. Now think of it, beloved, isn't this rather strange? The timing is strange. How can anyone be thinking of food and drink, of a meal, when they know that very soon they are going to be arrested? That's not a time to eat and have fellowship. That's at best a time to pray and to prepare. Or else it's a time to take to your heels and flee. Another strange thing about this meal is that it is preceded by thanksgiving. Paul writes, when he had given thanks, he broke it. In other words, Christ knew. He knew that his betrayal was imminent, but still he went out of his way to give thanks. So here he is, beloved, knowing that something horrible is about to happen to him, and yet he's not just praying, he's giving thanks. And that one would pray in such a circumstance is understandable. But that one would be giving thanks for food about to be eaten. I think that's rather extraordinary. And that brings us to the third strange element here, and that is that this meal is all about remembrance. Now, it's not so much about physical nourishment or fellowship as it is about remembering. Christ wants his followers to remember him, and he wants them especially to remember what is soon going to happen, his death. 
In other words, he's not asking them to remember what a nice person he was. He's not asking them to remember his wise, deep words. He's not asking them to remember his mighty miracles. No, he's asking them to remember his death and his dying. It's not even about ascension. It's not even about resurrection. It's about remembering his death. This meal is a death meal. But you know, beloved, perhaps the strangest aspect of all is the fact that this death meal is the meal of the greatest master and savior of all. Paul writes, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. He says the host of this meal is the Lord. And you know, that, that word really means that the host is the owner of everything and everyone that lives and breathes and exists on the face of the earth. He's the kurios. The Greek word for Lord. And even more than that, he is kurios Jesus, Savior. Meaning the one who comes to save his people from their sins. And taken together, it all begs the question, what is someone so great and so glorious doing as this kind of a host? Whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper together, do you ever stop and consider what a most amazing thing this is? I dare say if the Queen were to invite you tomorrow to Buckingham Palace with a free ticket to London, you would be stunned, awed, and starstruck. And I don't think you'd know what to think or what to say or what to do or how to dress. You'd just go in befuddled amazement. But you know, here is the Lord of all the earth. Here is the King of kings extending an invitation to you and I. And compared to him, Queen Elizabeth II is, sorry to say it, but of little consequence. In short, here is an invitation to really and truly prize and treasure. Here's one that should make your heart soar in thankfulness and your lips bubble over with praise. On a regular basis, you and I get invited by the greatest host in all the universe to eat and drink with him. But then, beloved, if all of that's rather strange and unusual, something else could be added to the list, and that's the menu. What's the menu for this meal? Two things, bread and wine. That's it, no more, no less. And then we ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of a menu is this? Well, in the first place, it's rather basic and simple. If you were expecting filet mignon and caviar, sorry. If you were expecting a five-course meal, sorry. 
If you were expecting cocktails and fancy hors d'oeuvres and a large course, main course, and delicious desserts, sorry. This meal has only two items on the, on the menu. And the first is bread. And what's bread? Bread's one of the most common foodstuffs in all the world. Together, bread and rice are basic to most diets. And the second item is wine. What kind? Who knows? What color? Who knows? Together, wine and water are basic to most diets as well. So in a sense, beloved, you can say the menu is nothing special at all. It's surprisingly common and utterly basic. But you know, in addition to being simple and basic, it's also rather sufficient. I think here of the Israelites in the desert. What they illustrate is that people don't really need a lot in order to live. We really don't need Safeway or Save on Foods. We just need a bread store and a wine store. Manna and and water or wine, it's enough. I realize the Lord added quail, but that was only because the Israelites complained and grumbled about the monotony of their diet. But the fact of the matter is that bread and wine are sufficient. They can sustain you, they can nourish you, they can keep you alive. We may like more, but we don't need more. And you know, that brings us to a third aspect of this diet. It's not just about bread and wine, but notice very carefully, this diet is about broken bread and shed or poured out wine. What that means is that this meal is symbolic. It signifies something. And the Catechism stresses that in answer 75 when it says, the, the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me. And then it adds, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me. You see, this meal, it paints a picture. It paints a picture of Christ's body being broken and of Christ's blood being poured out. The picture is one of sacrifice, brokenness, and death. And all for me. Yes, and we can bring that deeper yet. For not only is this menu symbolic in addition to being basic and sufficient, but it's also a pointer. A pointer to something else that we so often forget, and that is, beloved, to a twofold life. A twofold life. In Articles 35 of the Belgian Confession, 
It says, those who are born anew, and that's you, have a twofold life. One is physical and temporal, which they receive in their first birth and is common to all men. The other is spiritual and heavenly, which is given them in their second birth and is affected by the word of the gospel and the communion of the body of Christ. And then it adds, for the support of the physical and earthly life, God has ordained earthly and material bread. This bread is common to all just as life is common to all. But for the support of the spiritual and heavenly life which believers have, he has given them a living bread which came down from heaven. Namely, Jesus Christ who nourishes and sustains the spiritual life of the believers. You see, beloved, we have a twofold life. Our one life is sustained and supported by the likes of bread and wine. The other life is sustained and supported by the body and the blood of Christ. And so you can say that a simple meal is not so simple after all. If we approach this menu with the eyes and the ears of faith, we shall see deeper and realize better just how awesome the menu of the Lord's Supper really is. But then, beloved, an awesome menu presented by an even more awesome host should also do something in us and for us. You've heard the slogan, I suspect, you are what you eat. It's kind of scary. Eating has consequences. Too much eating has consequences for your weight and for your blood sugar levels, and wrong eating can ruin your health, and no eating can destroy your life. But on the other hand, right eating pays dividends, especially right spiritual eating. And now you scratch your head and you say to yourself, what is spiritual eating? Well, it's kind of different. First, it has to do with soul food. Answer 75 of the Catechism says, So surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. In other words, when we as believers partake of the food of the Lord's Supper in faith, it will do something deep inside us. It will nourish and refresh our souls, our inner life. So, beloved, if you want to be healthy, really healthy and strong, you'll watch what you eat. You'll see to it that your daily diet is good and wholesome. And you will see to it that every participation in the body and blood of Christ is a participation in faith and in commitment. That'll make for a healthy body and a sound soul 
And so, beloved, the Lord's Supper is soul food. It's also cleansing food, by the way. I'm sure you all heard of food cleansers. I don't want to go into details, but, you know, there are certain foods that you can eat. When you eat them, they kind of clean out your body of all kinds of evil elements. And the Lord's Supper has that kind of a cleansing aspect to it as well. Question 76 asked, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? And the answer, it states, first to accept with a believing heart all the suffering and death of Christ and so receive forgiveness of sins. In other words, when you and I partake of this supper in a believing manner, it should remind and assure us of something. It should remind and assure us that the bread and the wine are cleansing agents. Through the sacrifice of himself, Christ has paid for our sins and our trespasses. There is forgiveness for them. That's what this meal is proclaiming. No matter what they are, no matter how many they are, there's forgiveness. For this supper promises and assures me that through Christ's death, to the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood, I can be made clean again and whole again and right again with God and my neighbor. And isn't that a relief, beloved? Isn't that a source of great joy? But the joy doesn't stop there. Or in addition to this meal being soul food and cleansing food, it's also, in a manner of speaking, eternal food. And saying that I'm not proposing that heaven's diet is bread and wine, but rather I'm telling you that all who partake of this meal and menu in true faith receive not only the forgiveness of their sins, but also the promise of eternal life. The Apostle Paul specifically tells us that we need to eat the bread and drink the wine until he comes. In other words, keep this menu going always until Christ returns. It's the kind of thing that will nourish and sustain what we call the other Sunday, the in-between church. The church living between promise and fulfillment. The church on the march. Yes, and when he comes, what then? Well, beloved, then an even greater meal and supper awaits us, the supper of the Lamb of God. And then we shall feast Forever. See, beloved, all of this is but a foretaste. It's but a nibble. It's but a precursor to a much greater meal and celebration that is coming. For when the Savior returns, we shall feast forever. 
Like Moses, Aaron, the elders of Israel, we shall feast forever in the presence of God. So remember, every meal here is a meal closer to that eternal supper. Keep on eating and drinking in faith with an eye on the glory that is coming and the life that will never end. So, beloved, this meal is soul food, it's cleansing food, it's eternal food, or it points to that, but it's also union food. I don't mean labor union food, by the way. Look at answer 76 again. It tells us and it stresses that this supper also has very much a uniting kind of function. It means to be united more and more to his sacred body through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us. And therefore, although Christ is in heaven and we are on earth, yet we are flesh of his flesh, bone of his bones, and we forever live and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. Perhaps you wonder what happens between now and then. Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to provide for me between now and the return of Jesus Christ? What's going to happen? Well, here you have the answer. All who eat and drink Christ in faith will find themselves united more and more to Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gulf between heaven and earth is bridged. Christ may be in heaven as regards to his glorified body, but with respect to his spirit, he lives in us. And as he lives in us, he transforms us. He makes us, Paul says elsewhere and time and time again, more and more after his image. He unites us more and more to his person. He makes us new. And he makes us one. And that means that from now on you're never alone. No matter what place or circumstance in life you may be in, He is with us, in us. Beloved, every time you partake of this meal, remember, this is union food. It unites us more and more with Christ, our Savior. And so, beloved, we can say, taken together, here's a very special meal For a very special gathering, here is Christ's meal for Christ's people. So eat, drink, and rejoice. Let's pray. Almighty God and gracious Father, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you that you give us not only the sacrament of holy baptism, but also the sacrament of the Holy Supper.
And we thank you that you give these to us as instruments by which our faith is strengthened and maintained. And we thank you, Father, especially for this wondrous and beautiful meal, this incomprehensible meal, that on a regular basis we as your people may eat together with Christ and of Christ, that through the power of the Holy Spirit our faith may be nourished, refreshed, and strengthened. And so it is, Father, that you continue to supply your people, your people as they travel onward to the great marriage supper of the Lamb of God. Father, we thank you for your good care, for your love and your faithfulness in Jesus Christ, reminding us that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us, for our salvation, forgiveness, and life. Lord, receive our thanks in him. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.